Good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Wasn't uh, worship awesome today? It was just so good. I'm so thankful for that. It just uh, never uh, ceases to amaze me, like when you just come and you're in the presence together and how it fires you up, like for, what, for what's coming. And I, I experienced that in my own life for sure as I'm down there. It's like I just become aware of what's actually going on here. Uh, sort of in the unseen realm. We'll talk more about that later today. But a couple things. First of all, it's great to be back. Uh, Lynn and I had a great uh, time away together, did a road trip together. Uh, it was fun to stay uh, in tune with what you were doing here. You know, we followed along with the series, uh, Whole Heart. Uh, on the way back, we were in Colorado. On the way back, we listened to Dre's two messages. And then last weekend, we actually came to the 11 o'clock service. We wanted to be here to experience Joel the first time. And so isn't he a great addition to our team? And so excited about just the teaching team that God is building here and so thankful for all of that. Uh, number two, I just wanted to let you know, obviously, uh, I don't sound like normal today, right? <laughs> that uh, I came back and we had a great time away, but about Wednesday, I came down with a cold. And I don't know if you remember what those are at all, um, <laughs> but the, before COVID, we used to have like normal illnesses called colds, right? And, and so uh, you can look it up on Google or something of uh, what the symptoms were like. But about Wednesday, it hit me. And so it's been very touch and go all week, whether I'd be able to teach today. Um, but uh, I, I mentioned that for a couple reasons. I don't want it to be distracting as we're going through teaching. I don't want you worried about me. I'm going to be fine. The only thing I would give you a heads up is I am highly drugged up right now. And so uh, I'm, I'm less than accountable as normal uh, for what I say. And for those of you in the front row, if you'd be ready to catch me if I fall off, that would be uh, awesome. So if you will just agree with me to ignore my voice or cough or whatever, then we we've got more important things to do, right? It's, it's game time. So let's go, amen? So um, let's, uh, let's pray together and then we'll jump in. So Father, we just thank you for this privilege of being in your house today. And like, like we sang today, Lord, that we're, we're in the house of the Lord and and, and even the priest calling out that the gates would be opened up, that the king of glory might come in. And as we even talk today, Lord, about that a little bit, about what happens when the people of God gather in the name of Jesus and how the power of the Lord is there, we pray that today that that would be our experience. Lord, I, I think of your word that we're studying in 1 Corinthians. It says that the kingdom of God does not exist in word, it's in power. And so, Lord, we come today not just going through the motions. We come not just because it's the weekend or this is what we do. We come as a people of God seeking your face. And we pray, Lord, that you would unleash that power here. We pray that you would meet with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today on a beautiful spring day. And uh, this family has been working all day for this important evening meal that they're going to be celebrating together. And uh, the last month or two has just been crazy. Uh, it's been, it's been, they've experienced things they just never thought they would see. Um, but this tonight, they're going to be reflecting not only in the last month or two, but what's coming in the future. And when the evening finally comes and the meal is served, it's delicious, it's it's much higher fare than they're used to. They don't normally get to eat like this. But as delicious as the meal is, their focus, their attention is not so much on the meal, but on what's going to happen later on this evening. And the reality is none of them really know exactly what to expect, but they're all at high alert. There's a sense of anticipation, perhaps a bit of fear, not knowing what the future will hold. And so after dinner, they put the young ones to bed, but the rest of them stay up, waiting for they're not sure exactly what. But as it turns out, this will be a night they never go to sleep. And by the time this night is over, events will be set into motion that will change not only their lives, but change the course of human history forever. Well, today we are continuing, kind of jumping back in this series that we started this last spring that's called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And for those of you who are brand new, uh, or maybe you've been here, but you just forget, uh, this, this series is an in-depth look at one of the letters in the New Testament, I think one of the most important letters for our time right now. Uh, it's <coughs> written by a man named Paul, we call him the Apostle Paul. 
and he's writing to a group of Jesus followers uh, that he, he actually had led to Christ. Uh, he and his team had led to Christ about three years before uh, in the southern tip uh, of what we call modern-day Greece. And, and so what had, what had happened is that, uh, that Paul has, uh, had three years before come to share the message of Jesus. And as we saw earlier in this series, it's a crazy message. It's a controversial message that that the, that the crucified Messiah is actually king of creation, and through him that we can be reconciled to God. But in spite of that craziness of that message, that, that many people came to Christ, that God moved in a supernatural way, and they not only uh, entered in this new relationship with God, received the forgiveness of sins, got, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but in this particular church, God poured out a wide array of powerful supernatural spiritual gifts that we'll talk more about when we get to chapters 12 and 14 of this letter. But as a result of that, if you remember, this, this church tended to see themselves as very wise, uh, very mature spiritually because of these powerful spiritual experiences and gifts. But the reality is they're actually spiritually very immature. In fact, in chapter 3, Paul says, I couldn't speak to you as, as uh, wise or spiritually mature. I had to speak to you as spiritual babies. And one of the ways it's so obvious is because this church is dividing into different factions following their, their favorite leader. Some saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Some are saying, oh, I'm actually a follower of Apollo. So, hey, Peter's my man. Uh, so I'm following Jesus. But behind all of this, uh, all of this craziness that's going on in the church is that the basic core issue is that they've come to Jesus. They've never allowed the Holy Spirit to renew their minds. And so the, the bottom line is they're, they're, they're not really following the vision and the values and the character of Jesus. They're following the vision and values of Corinth and their culture. And this is leading to a wide array of problems of conflict, chaos, and confusion. And so today as we jump into this section, second section of the letter that starts at chapter 5 and runs through chapter 7, Paul is going to begin to address several of these specific issues that are rising up in the church because they're not following Jesus, they're following culture. And so if you have your Bibles today, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and we'll turn, turn them on and we'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we're going to be covering the entire chapter. Don't get your hopes up. We won't be doing that every week. But this whole chapter hangs together. And so... Um, so, he's, so he, uh, Paul says, it's actually reported, chapter 5 and verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. So let's stop there. So at this point in the letter, Paul is beginning to shift. You may remember back in chapter 1 that he said, hey, I've heard from Chloe's household that there are divisions amongst you. So what we're going to see as we move on in this letter is that in the last few months, Remember, Paul is a long ways away from them. He is in the major city, ancient city of Ephesus, uh, which is on the, the coast of modern-day Turkey. They're in Corinth in the southern Greece. There's 350 miles between them uh, of Aegean Sea. And so, but what we're going to find out is that one of the reasons Paul's writing this letter is he's recently, he's had two visits from different parties that have come to him from Corinth, kind of sharing with him some of the challenges that are going on in Corinth. And so he, he says, so that's one of the reasons he's writing this letter. And so he says, it's actually reported, in other words, I've heard it through the grapevine, that there's sexual immorality uh, among you. And he says, and of a kind that the pagans don't, don't even accept, right? So one of the things that we're going to see in this series is that the ancient world was very sexualized. Uh, it was much more, uh, if you want to call it liberal, or much more sexually active, if you call it that way, than our current culture. This often co comes as a surprise today. Uh, often people are surprised by that, but we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, but uh, it was a very sexualized society. But even in Roman culture, they had limits. And one of those limits is that uh, you couldn't have sex with someone in your family, that incest was considered a very serious crime. And so Paul says, hey, I hear that there's not only a sexual immorality going on, which is horrible, but of a kind that even the pagans uh, won't, won't uh, tolerate. And he says, verse, uh, 
verse, the end of verse one, he says, and so here's the situation. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, um, in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, marriage, uh, Roman marriages were often formed for political and social reasons. That wasn't so much romance as a normal uh, course. And often, uh, a Roman man would marry a bride that's much, much younger. It's very, very typical. Uh, in fact, somebody said he could marry, I think it was 12 years old, something like that. It's very, very young. Now, uh, as a result of that, uh, this may sound weird that a man is sleeping with his father's uh, wife, but, if you, if, but picture this, that the man has married a, a woman that's much younger than him, and uh, this man also has a son, and now they're in the same household, and so one thing's led to another, and, and he's having an affair. Now, from what Paul says here, it doesn't sound like the woman is part of the church. She, she doesn't sound like she's part of the church. Uh, Paul's concern is with this man who is, who is living in sin. So as we'll see today, as we go through this uh, passage, and it's in the next couple of weeks, that, that when it comes to the Bible, when the New Testament talks about sexual immorality, it's really talking about any sort of sex that's outside of the one woman, one man, lifetime commitment relationship, what we call marriage. So any kind of sex outside of that sex, whether it's premarital sex, Post, uh, uh, premarital, extramarital sex, same sex, uh, 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 kind of same sex relation, whatever it is, it all comes under this title of sexual immorality. And so Paul says, hey, I'm shocked at this, that there's, you actually have sexual immorality, but it's not just that, but that on top of that, it's kind that even pagans don't uh, tolerate. So apparently this man is part of the church, and it would seem as you look at the context that, that he is not turning from his sin. That he's, it's, it's not like he's just fallen into sin, but he's living in this lifestyle of sin. He's not really willing to change. And so Paul is shocked by this. And he says to them in verse 2, and you are proud. So remember the whole context of the letter. These Corinthians see themselves as very spiritual, very mature. And he's like, this is Christianity 101. <laughs> and like, what are you thinking? And he says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man. Notice he didn't say the couple. So that's why this woman's problem. That the man who's been doing this. So this is the first of four times in this passage that Paul is going to say either directly or indirectly via metaphor, hey, you need to move towards this problem and you need to remove this person from your church. Right? He, he, can't be, he can't be part of the church of Jesus and living in fake flagrant sin. You have a choice to make, and we'll, we'll talk about that later on. And so he, says, so, um, so he says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, remember he's 350 miles away, I'm with you in spirit, and as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed, what's the next word? Okay, so today we need to redeem the word judgment, okay? Because in our culture today, Often, even the church, one of the most famous, most popular verses in our culture is, judge not, lest you be judged. Right? And so we're going to talk about that later. Obviously, it's an important quote of Jesus, what he meant and what he didn't mean. But for right now, I want you to catch it. Paul says, I've already passed judgment. As your spiritual leader, as your apostle, I've heard the story. I've heard the facts that's been shared with me. And he said, and so I've passed judgment. In other words, the evidence is in. The verdict is clear. It's time for you to act. And so he says, um, so in verse 4, he says, so here's what you need to do. So when you're assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. All right, so I'm going to stop there. You may have noticed, but throughout this series, often before I, uh, when I come out, often before I teach, often as in the opening prayer, that I will reference this passage. This passage is a powerful passage, and I want to do just a quick sidebar on this. I want you to catch the way Paul sees what happens when the followers of Jesus come together in the name of Jesus. He says, when you are assembled, when you come together as a church in the name of our Lord Jesus, and the power of the Lord is there, what I want you to catch is what happens when we are gathering together as a church family, whether it's in a life group, whether it's two or three believers 
in a very small group gathering to pursue the Lord. Remember what Jesus said, where two or three are gathered. I know that when the church comes together in the name of Jesus, I want you to get the power of the Lord is there. Are you with me? That we need to rethink the way we look at church. I think often, and this is not meant to be an accusation against anyone specific, I'm talking in general, but I think often when we think of church, we almost think of the way we go to a movie. Hey, I'm going to see a movie today, right? And so I I don't even need to show up on time uh, because I know we're going to have 15 to 20 minutes of of previews. I don't really care about that. So I'll just kind of get there when I get there. And we come with almost an entertainment mindset. We're here to kind of critique the message, critique the worship. You know, didn't they, oh, I loved how Lauren did that. I loved how Lauren did this. And it's easy for us to come with almost consumer type mindset. And what I want to catch you is that we need to constantly be rethinking what we're doing when we gather. That when you and I come together in the name of Jesus, the power of the Lord is there that we come as the people of God in the presence of God and Jesus comes and he comes to speak and he comes to heal and he comes to correct and he comes to rebuke. The Lord is in the house, amen? Amen. The Lord is in the house. You know, today, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but Lauren started off with his Psalm, Psalm 24. And uh, at the end of this Psalm is this beautiful, uh, this beautiful kind of uh, passage that most scholars believe that it, there was, this was a passage used in the temple of Jerusalem, and the priests would call out to each other in an antiphonal way. And so at the end of that Psalm 24, the priest calls out, lift up your heads, you gates. So there's the gates to the temple. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up your ancient doors as they call to one another, that the king of glory may come in. And then... And then one side of the priest said, who is this king of glory? And the other priest answered, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty and battle. Lift up your head, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Right? And so men and women, when we gather together here in the church of God, when we come to our life groups, we need to rethink what we're doing. We're not just putting in our time. We're not just hanging out. We are coming as the people of God into the presence of God that the Lord of glory may come in, right? And so what does that mean practically? And I'm not looking at anyone specifically right now, okay? You may have good reasons today why you were late, right? You may have absolutely good. So don't take this personally, but let me tell you, this means we need to start preparing to come into the presence before we come. It means that we need to get a good night's sleep before we come so we're not sleeping through what Jesus is saying, right? We need to be here on time so that the people of God, when the king of glory comes through the gates, we are here for the king of glory, right? There is something that happens. I don't know if you noticed it today, but the longer we're in worship, the deeper we go into the presence. And we come into the presence and we're ready to hear the word of the Lord because we've been with the Lord, And so coming to church is not just going through the motions. It's not something we check off. We are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the power of the Lord is there. And we come on bended knee saying, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Amen. All right. Okay, so that was a sidebar. All right. So Paul says, so here's what you need to do. You've got this man, he's living in flagrant sin. He's not willing to turn from it. And so here's what you need to do. When you're assembled, verse four, and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, you need to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, time out. The crazy things when you're all met it up, you know, it's, it helps with the cough, but your mouth gets so dry. So, um, so theologians, scholars will disagree and kind of argue and debate over several parts of this. Like, what is Paul actually saying in this kind of delivering uh, the person over? But one thing that seems clear, the bottom line, is that Paul says is that, that when the church kind of 
uh, uh, kind of ceremonial way, says, hey, this person can no longer be part of the fellowship. That, you know, the Bible says in Colossians chapter one that when someone comes to Jesus, catch this, we are transferred from the authority of darkness into the kingdom of a beloved son. We switch kingdoms. And so we come under the authority and the protection of the king. And so when someone is disciplined and removed from the fellowship, what's happening is they're being put out into the kingdom of darkness where they'll be disciplined by Satan himself. He says, but notice this, the goal is not to humiliate. The goal is not to punish. There's nothing about looking down our nose at here as if we're better. The whole point of this is to be redemptive. And look what he says. He says in verse uh, five, he says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, perhaps his lower nature, so that his spirit may be saved when the Lord returns. Right? So this, this is what it's about. It's sort of a spiritual intervention, if you will. When you think of... Uh, as someone you love who's maybe addicted to drugs and destroying their life or addicted to alcohol, and you, you get the family together and you draw some lines that you can't be a part of this family anymore than the same way unless you make some changes. And it, it's a spiritual intervention. It's kind of a, a tough love. And so he says in verse six, so your boasting is not good. So remember they're proud and boasting about how, how spiritual they are. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know? And it's interesting. This is, remember in this, in this uh, letter, there's going to be 10 times in this letter. We saw one back in chapter three. 10 times, Paul is going to say, don't you know? And when he says, don't you know, it's a way of him really saying, what's wrong with you? You should know better. Like, you, you know better. He says, so don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. Some of you are bakers, you understand this, that when you put the, the leaven or the yeast into a batch, it works its way all through. And, and he says, sin works the same way. That when you don't deal with sin in the community, it tends to spread. And he says, so here's what you need to do. He says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the question is, what's he talking about? <clears throat> well, this takes us back to the story that we started the day with, about this family that's been working hard all day, preparing for this very special dinner. But as they shared during dinner, their attention is not so much on the dinner, but what's going to happen next? They're not really sure. Um, this is kind of my version, uh, kind of a historical reconstruction of one family's experience on the night of the first Passover. So if you remember how this account goes, that God sends Moses back to Egypt to demand that, that Pharaoh leaves, lets his people go. And of course, Pharaoh is not willing to do that, to let his slaves go. And so, so God brings a series of 10 powerful plagues to force his hand. The last plague was the plague of the death of the firstborn son of every family and the first, uh, firstborn male uh, uh, of every herd. And, and so God come, tells Moses, you need to tell the people that, uh, that to protect themselves, that they need to, to take a, a year-old lamb, a male lamb without defect, and they need to slaughter it, they need to sacrifice it, and they need to take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorposts, around the doorframe of their house. And he says, so when the angel of death passes through the land, that he will see the blood and he will pass over that house. That house will be protected by the blood of the lamb. And sure enough, that's what happened. At midnight on that night, that the angel of death passed through the land and this horrendous final plague is what it took to move Pharaoh's heart. He calls Moses in and he says, okay, take your people and leave finally. And they do, but they don't have time to make the bread for the next day and for it to rise. So they have to take this unleavened bread with them. So this is the greatest event in Israel's history in the Old Testament. This is the greatest act of salvation 
of the Exodus is the greatest the high point of Israel's experience. And so, Paul, so, so God says that through Moses, from that point on, you're to sacrifice, or you're to celebrate this great day of redemption every year by celebrating the Passover. And to help you remember, you not only have the Passover, but in the next seven days after the Passover, you only eat unleavened bread. So for a week, you're remembering what I did. And so Paul is going back to that and he says, you know, that, that whole Passover event with the unleavened bread, it's like a, a prophetic type of a greater salvation that would one day come. When a greater lamb of God would come and when the blood of his lamb would be on the doorposts of our life so that when the judgment comes, we would be passed over. And he says, in this metaphor, in this type, Paul says that the leaven represents sin. And he said, so as a body of Christ, as a new community of the king, we need to celebrate this Passover and live in the reality of Passover by, by purging our lives of sin in the community. And so that's his, and, and of course his application is, that's why we need to remove this man from the fellowship. So that's what he's referring to here. In verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole bunch of dough? In other words, if you don't, if you don't take the sin out of the community, it will spread. He says, so get rid of the old yeast. Then we need to remove this man so that you may, have, you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. In other words, the festival of Passover and unleavened bread not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's live out our new life in Christ with sincerity and truth. Now, at this point, Paul wants to stop because he wants him to understand that this instruction that he's given on this specific case about this man sleeping with his stepmother, that this is what they need to do anytime there's what you might call flagrant sin going on in the body that someone's unwilling to repent of. And so he's going to expand it out now and say, hey, it's not just for this one, this is kind of the general way you, you deal with this. So he says in verse 9, he said, I wrote to you in my letter. So this is interesting. We're reading this letter, and we call it 1 Corinthians. And the reason we call it 1 Corinthians is because it's the first letter from Paul that we actually have but he had actually written a previous letter that we don't have. And he said, I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So in his previous letter, probably dealing with the same type of issue here, he said not to associate with sexually immoral people, but they, they are either misunderstood him or they don't want to understand him. I'm not sure which. But, but so they've taken this, you know, him to say basically, hey, you shouldn't hang out with anyone who's sexually immoral. And that kind of knocks out almost everyone in Corinth. And so he's clarifying, no, I didn't mean anyone. I mean anyone who calls himself a believer, right? And so he's going to clarify. He says, not at all meaning the people of this world. And he says, it's not just about sexual sin. He gives some other examples who are immoral or are greedy or are swindlers, or idolaters. Idolatry is going to be a big topic in this letter. When we get to chapter 8 and 10. He's kind of prepping them for it. He says, in that case, you'd have to leave the world, right? Like if the thing was, hey, as Christians, you, know, you can't hang out with anyone who doesn't living an upright life, we'd all have to quit our jobs, right? Well, may, maybe not me, but, you know, most of us. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> In verse 11, he said, but now I'm writing, so I'm just going to clarify now, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be what? Okay, so, so this is like self-claiming, self-designating, I'm a follower of Jesus. So if someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, but is living in flagrant sin and they're not willing to turn from them, he says you shouldn't associate with them. We need to cut off relationship with them, like with this man we've just talked about, right? Same thing. He said, in that case, uh, verse, verse 11, so I'm, I'm writing to you, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, that's the key part, but is, and he gives several examples, sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a kind of a partier, 
uh, or a swindler. He says, do not even eat with such people. He says, so he asks a couple rhetorical questions here. What business is it of mine to what? What's the next word? Judge. What's in, what business is it of mine <laughs> to judge those outside the church? It's none of my business. Like it's the people outside the community, it's not my job to judge their lives. He says, but he says, are you not to what? Judge. Okay, we're, re, we're, we're, we're bringing that word back into our vocabulary. Are you not to judge those on the inside? In other words, hold one another accountable if someone claims to be a follower of Jesus. He says, God will judge those on the outside. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy. He says, you need to expel the wicked person from amongst you. It's the fourth time he said, you guys are really blowing it as a church. You need to take action and remove this man from the fellowship. Now, very powerful passage. And what I want to do today in the time that we have is I want to highlight three really key principles for us about what does it look like to follow Jesus, the way of Christ and his cross, versus the way of culture uh, in this area of accountability, all right? So there in your note sheet, you have a section called something. Yeah, I haven't turned there yet. Okay, Christ, culture, and the cross, the new community, all right? So let's jump in. So the first principle here that jumps out, and we're not going to talk about this a lot today because Paul is actually going to delve into it deeply in two weeks. We're going to come back to it, but we need to at least lay the foundation today because that's what this passage, kind of the specific case Paul is dealing with. But the first principle is that sexual purity is a non-negotiable. That when we come to Jesus... One of the first steps of obedience he calls us to is is to sexual purity. And again, sexual purity will be defined in biblical terms as sexual immorality is any kind of sex that's outside of that one man, one woman, lifetime commitment, what we call marriage, any kind of sex outside of that, premarital, living together, one night stands, tender, uh, tender companions, uh, whatever, you know, the thing is, uh, 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 extramarital, uh, uh, same-sex relation, any kind of thing outside of that would be sexual morality. And, and catch this, this is Christianity 101. Now, it's interesting because I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but today Paul gives one of his sinless. And he says, hey, don't associate with anyone who calls himself a believer, and he says, who's doing these kinds of things. And he lists six examples, Right? These kinds of sinless are very common in the New Testament. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but every one of them starts with sexual immorality. The first thing you say, why is that? One of the reasons is sexual immorality was so prevalent in the ancient world. Like we live in our world today, we see the direction of our culture going, going downhill fast, especially in this area and we often tend to assume that, well, hey, it's, it's a new time and this is a new phenomenon. But the reality is, and you may be surprised by this, that the first century Roman culture was much more sexualized than our own. And we'll look at that more in a couple weeks. So sometimes you'll have people say, even people who claim to be Christians will say, hey, well, that was a different time in a different place. Culture has changed. Times have changed. And and that's not really realistic to live a life of sexual purity because that was just a long time ago and God doesn't expect that. And here would be my answer. You're right. Things have changed. They've gotten much better. That as a result of Christianity's impact on the Western world, the sexual standards went way up. Now we're currently going down again, but we still have not got down as far as the Roman Empire. And so the reality is that it's easier for us in many ways today to follow Jesus in this area than it was then. This is one of the things that set the early church apart. One of the two or three main things that set them apart was their high standard of sexual purity that the world had never seen outside of Israel. And it's one of the things that drew people to the church eventually. Not at first, but you know, eventually. And so what we're going to see in this series is that if we're going to follow Jesus, one of the ways that we need to follow Christ and his cross, not the culture, is in this area of sexual purity. It's a non-negotiable. And you see that here, how seriously Paul takes that. 
if anyone's sexually immoral, they're not willing to turn, don't eat with them. You can't be part of the fellowship. Number two. The second point is that the new community requires accountability. That the moment we come to Jesus, you and I not only enter into a new vertical relationship with God as our Father, we enter into a new relationship with one another as brothers and sisters. And a key component of this new community is that we hold each other accountable for family rules, kind of family standards. Now, this is interesting, and it's often surprising that, that, the, that this new community of Jesus would be, would be required, demanded, to uh, hold each other accountable. And one of the reasons is something that Jesus said. So there in your notes, she's a very famous statement uh, of something Jesus said. In fact, even some people who have never been to church often quote this. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, where it says, Do not judge, or you'll also be judged. And so the way that people have often interpreted that is we should never have an opinion about what anyone else is doing. We should never, we should never say something's wrong. We stick to our own business. Uh, and this can happen even in the church. But what's interesting, if you go on in that passage and read on, Jesus is not talking about holding one another accountable. He's talking about two things. He's saying as, as believers, first of all, we should not be judgmental. And in other words, in, as you study the life of Jesus, the religious leaders were such, uh, they, they were so judgmental, right? They looked down their nose on anyone who'd fallen into sin. And Jesus said, no, no, that's, in my kingdom, that's like we're, we're, all, we're all saved by grace, right? We don't, we're not judgmental. And we're secondly, we're not hypocritical. We don't call out someone else's sin when we're living in the same sin. You remember what he said? He just goes on in chapter seven. He says, hey, why are you trying to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own eye, right? So we shouldn't be judgmental. We shouldn't be hypocritical. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is constantly tells us to be discerning. Hey, evaluate prophets. Don't follow false prophets. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Well, you have to know, you have to identify swine, right? He's not saying don't make judgments or don't hold accountable. And this becomes really clear when we get to Matthew chapter 18. I'd like you to take your Bibles if you have. It's not on your note sheet. But I want us to look at this just briefly because it makes it super clear that when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he's not talking about holding one another in the body of Christ accountable. So in verse 15, are you there with me? Chapter 18 or 15, yeah. Uh, yeah, last night I forgot to give the verse. I started reading it. It took a while. So verse 15, uh, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, ignore it. Wait, uh, must be in the Greek. Uh, yeah, this is Nicole speaking, yeah. Uh, if your brother or sister sins, let it go because you have sin in your own life. No. He says, if your brother or sister sins, what are you to do? Go and point out their fault. In the community of Jesus, we have a responsibility to hold each other accountable. And he says, and just do it between the two of you. You don't need to share it with your 18 best friends. You just, just go to the two of them. He said, and if they listen to you, you've won them over. Great, problem solved. But if they will not listen, you need to escalate. You need to take one or two others along. Now, why? Because in the Old Testament legal system, that when you brought a charge against someone, you, they had to have two or three witnesses. And Jesus says that principle still applies. And so he says, if they'll not listen, take one or two others along, so that, quote, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He says, but if they still refuse to listen, they still won't turn, then tell it to the church, just like, like what Paul said today. Tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen, even the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector which seems to mean that Paul's kind of like the synagogue where you're put out of the synagogue, right? Same thing that Paul is saying. And so what we see here is that, that in this new community of Jesus, that we, we are called to love one another, and one of the ways we love one another is by holding each other accountable to family standards. Right? Now, what's interesting is that, of course, in our culture today, this would get tremendous pushback, Right? that we, if anyone were to ever kind of confront someone else with their sin, 
the, the pre, very, even among pagans, it would be very much like, who are you to judge me? Uh, mind your own business. Everyone should do their own thing. But here's something interesting is this, this is actually this perspective, kind of the perspective of Corinth, that we don't need to move towards this. It actually has worked its way into the church. And this will actually happen among Christians. You know, I remember um, when I was new at Rocky Peak, um, I'd been here about a year. So this was a long time ago. Uh, it was maybe about 16 years ago. And uh, one, one time uh, our worship pastor at the time came to me and said, hey, uh, it's been reported to me. Remember what Paul said? It's been reported to me. It's been reported to me that, hey, there's a woman, a single woman on our, our, uh, our worship team who is, uh, is sleeping with her boyfriend. So it's, uh, it's not a one-time thing like they slipped and fell and turned from it or something, that, that this is an ongoing lifestyle thing. And he said, you know, uh, we've never faced that since you've been here, so how do you want to deal with that, you know? And I said, well, you know, based on 1 Corinthians 5, and so I think we need to move towards it and have a conversation. First of all, just explore, even if it's true, it might even be true, um, but if it's true, we, we, we need to move towards it, right? And so... So he did, and I said, hey, make sure when you, when, you have, when you meet with this woman, take another woman from our staff. So there's a woman there, very appropriate, um, and, and just explore And so they, they did. And so when they brought this up, this woman who is part of our worship team here, not only, not only said yes, not only affirmed, yes, this is going on, but she said, how dare you question me about it? This is none of your business. What I do in my personal life is none of your business. Now, what's happening there is that Corinth has come into the church. Yeah. Are you with me? As the culture has come into the church because Jesus is very clear that when we come to him, we're part of the community. There's tremendous rights and privileges that come with being in the body of Christ, but there are also tremendous responsibilities. And that we are called to hold each other accountable. Right? So we may come back to her story and how that all worked out later, Let's move on for now. Let's talk number three. Number three is the purpose. And when I say the purpose, I'm talking about the purpose of this sort of uh, uh, accountability. Um, the purpose is protection and restoration. So when Paul lays out what they should do, remove this man from your fellowship, he gives two specific reasons. One is protection of the body, the community. The second is restoration of the individual. So let's take them in reverse order. Let's start with restoration. I want you to notice there on your note sheet what Paul says again. He says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be what? Saved. Save, right? So this, this, this action of holding one another accountable is all about a person's restoration. Right, so, so what's happening in a situation like this where someone is living in flagrant sin and they're unwilling to change, they're unwilling to repent, what's happening is in their own mind, they've come to a place where they think this, I can believe in Jesus and be a follower of Jesus and I can live in flagrant sin and that's probably not the best, but it's really okay. That Jesus understands. We, he and I have this agreement. Right? And so what Jesus says is, no, remember what Paul said, when you gather in the name of our Lord Jesus, right? He, he says, no, what you need to do as the body of Christ, you need to stand up and speak for Jesus. You need to stand with Jesus and say, no, that is not true. You're deceived. And if you continue down that path, then things are not going to go well for you. I want you to look with me at a passage of Scripture that we're going to come to next week, but, uh, but I want to take a look at today, chapter 6. This is uh, chapter 6 of uh, 1 Corinthians. It's not on your note sheet. And uh, Paul, uh, next week, is the topic on the table is lawsuits in the body of Christ. And, and so you can sense Paul getting a little frustrated by this point. It's like, here's people that are dividing over the favorite leaders. They're running each other down. They've got all these issues out of their own selfishness in the church. They're letting sexual sin go unchallenged 
in the church, not, not even dealing with that. They're taking each other to court. And Paul just kind of stops and he says something really profound in verse 9. He says, or do you not know? Remember that question? Do you not know? Like, hey, what's wrong with you? Hey, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Yeah, but I went forward at a harvest crusade and prayed a prayer. Like, no, wrongdoers don't inherit the kingdom of God. It's like if you think that, that you can come to Jesus, if you think that believing in Jesus is just kind of giving some mental assent that, yes, I, I believe these certain things about him, if that's what you think believing in Jesus is, you're really off base. Believing in Jesus becomes the place where he is the king and lord of the universe. And as king and lord, I bow the knee before him and I follow him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And he says, so if you think you can be a follower of Jesus and go on in this lifestyle of rebellion and sin, you're in deception. And so Paul goes on and he says, I, uh, in verse uh, nine, he says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be what? Deceived. If you think that you can do, live a lifestyle of wrong like this man in Corinth and be part of the kingdom, you're deceived. He said, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, Will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? And so Paul says that it's if you truly love someone, it's our responsibility to go to them and hold them accountable because they're living in deception. And the longer that we're living in deception, the more the, the dimmer switch gets turned down. And the greater spiritual danger we're in. Now, this is often not only countercultural, it's counterintuitive. Because often the church of Jesus, when we, we know someone who's living in flagrant sin but claims to be a follower of Jesus, that often we don't do this because we're afraid to drive them away. And so what we do instead is the opposite. We allow them to come and be part of the body, be in a life group or whatever. And we think, and, and our logic goes like this, well, at least they're hearing the word. At least they're in fellowship. But the reality, that's not what happens. What happens is that we're sending them a message that you're right. Yep. That what you're doing is not really that big of a deal. And we're putting them in harm's way. And so if we truly love someone, Jesus asks us to stand with him and deliver truth to them. Truth with grace. You know, and the beautiful thing is, in my experience, the more often than not, people respond really beautifully to this. You know, that a lot of you know that before I came to Rocky Peak, I was, uh, you know, part of another uh, large church. And uh, one of the things that I led there was a large singles ministry. And so we had, like, in our monthly meeting, uh, over 700 uh, single adults who would come out to that, all kinds of activities and so on. And, uh, and as a result of that, as you can imagine, with 700 single adults, from time to time, you'd have sexual immorality come up, Right? And so we would always move towards it. And typically I would meet with a couple and say, hey, it's been reported to me. Like, I don't even know if this is true. And they would usually say, yeah, yeah, that's true. And I would say, well, help me understand kind of where you are with Jesus. Help me understand, like, do you see yourself like you're kind of a, you've not, you don't really believe in God, or maybe you believe see yourself as a God person, you believe in God, or do you see yourself as someone who believes in Jesus, giving your life to Jesus, right? Because my, this conversation is gonna change directions based on how they see themselves. And, and every time they would say, oh, we see ourselves as followers of Jesus. Okay, great, so can we do a Bible study together? They say yes, and I would take them to 1 Thessalonians 4. It just spells out so clearly that if we wanna please the Lord, the first step is sexual purity. And, and that Paul says that anyone who rejects this teaching is not rejecting the teaching of man, they're rejecting God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And usually as we go through that, you could almost see their countenance begin to change and soften. Because what's happening is that they were believers. And the Holy Spirit has been telling them this. 
but they've been rationalizing to themselves for a long time. But confronted with the clear teaching of God's word, those defenses begin to fall. And then I take them to 1 Corinthians 5 and just read them through what we just studied. I say, can you see, can you see the position that I'm in? That if we don't hold you accountable for this, I'm going to have to answer for Jesus. Why I've let sin go rampant in his body. And they would say yes. And so then I would share with them this very simple principle that's so profound when it comes to these areas of flagrant sin. I'd, I'd share with them, here's your choice. I love you. I want you here. You know that. But this is really a choice that only you can make. You can either hold on to your sin and let go of the community. Or you can hold on to the community and let go of your sin. But you can't have it both ways. I want you here, I love you, I believe this is, what you're doing is destructive. But only you can make that decision. And can I tell you, in almost without exception, not every time, but almost without exception, there's a breakthrough moment. And there's a moment of beautiful repentance because the Holy Spirit's been telling them this. But they've been resisting the truth. And so they're, they're living in unrest. Their souls are not right. And from that point on, we began to, okay, so what's moving forward? And you know what's interesting? Like in that particular case, if it's a case of fraud or slander, it's be a different thing. But in that particular case, I would often ask them, well, do you plan to get married? They said, well, yeah, we do. Well, why aren't you getting married? Well, because we don't have enough money for the wedding and all the honeymoon. And I said, you know what? The most important thing, if you want a great marriage, is to have your marriage under the blessing of God. And right now, you're not under the blessing. And so, why don't you just get married and then have a party later on? And they'd say, can we do that? They'd say, absolutely. I'd say, I don't even do weddings, but I'll do your wedding. You could go down and get the thing, have it here in my office, get a few friends around, we'll get you married. And then you can step under the blessing and then move on, have a party later. Amen. How many times do we do this backwards? And just kind of quick sidebar to some of, some of you parents right now. Sometimes in the body of Christ, we can make this huge mistake. We have a son or daughter, and they're in love. They've been dating for a long time. It seems like a solid relationship. They want to get married, and his parents will know, no, you have to finish your school first. And we're putting them in harm's way. By putting them in, they're going to have to stay sexually celibate for the next three years so they finish school. It's like what we're saying, getting your education is more important than your holiness. Right? And so, what I want you to catch, the purpose of this discipline, this is not about punishment. This is not about shaming. This is about speaking Jesus' truth to, a, to someone that we love dearly to help them make the right decision. Like the prodigal son, they realize it and they come home. And they have the father run to them, amen? amen. But it's not just about, it's not just about uh, restoration of the person. Paul's greater concern here, frankly, is the protection of the body. And this is what this whole illustration about, about the Passover is all about. He says, don't you realize that sin is like leaven? And when it, when it's left unchecked in the body of Christ, it spreads. And this is so true. Like, I, I look at this area of sexual purity today, and so many uh, Christian couples are perhaps living in sin. You know, one of the ways they justify it is, I know lots of Christians who do this. See, the thing is, when we lower the bar on God's holiness, we create a situation where it's easier for the next person to sin. It's like, well, this may not be right, but I know three couples that are sleeping together. And, and they're still at church, and they're still okay. And, they're still... and so what happens is that when we allow sin in the body, we make the whole church more vulnerable to sin. And so Paul says, no, no, no. You have to deal with this for the sake, not only the person, but for the sake of protecting the community. So this all leads to a question, all right? During your note sheet as we wrap this up, Christ, culture, and the cross, one key question. So let me give you the question, and then I have three specific applications. So the, the first, the question goes like this. 
How will you respond to Christ's call for accountability? How will you respond in your own personal life to what we've, we've learned today about Christ's call? He says, hey, if someone sins, go towards them, right? We've seen that. How will you respond to Christ's call for accountability? <clears throat> so we've had this teaching today. We saw what Paul says very clear. We see what Jesus says very clear. So the question is, how will you personally respond to this? And I want to ask at three different levels. The first question is, how will you respond if you fall into sin? All right? None of us are immune. None of us are beyond the sin. So let's say you fall into sin and someone comes to you from your life group. Someone call, comes to you from your ministry team. A pastor comes to you and says, hey, what, what's going on here? Can we talk about this? How will you respond? Will you respond in your own life like that woman that I talked about earlier, 15, 16 years ago, who said, hey, it's none of your business? Or will you respond like those couples I talked about in my office that say, hey, you're right. Can I tell you something? That many of those couples became some of my closest friends over the years because they sensed that there was a deep love behind this and that this intervention had rescued them and set them on a path for a new life, right? And, and so how will you respond? Will you respond the way the culture responds? Judge not lest you be judged. Will you respond like, who are you to tell me? You're acting like you're perfect. You're acting like you're better. What is this? I never did that to you. When you were, how will you respond if you're challenged when you are living in flagrant sin? A second application is how will you respond to others when they're living in flagrant sin? In other words, Jesus said, hey, if your brother or sister sins, he didn't say ignore it. He said, he said, go to them. He didn't say go to 25 people and tell them. I think it's wise often in situations like this, often you need wise counsel. It's appropriate to come to a pastor, a wise older leader in your life and say, hey, here's what, can you coach me through this? There's, there's, I think there's some wisdom in that. But what we're not to do is to go and gossip about this person in the body of Christ and ruin their reputation and spread it all over town, hoping that somehow it'll get back to them. We need to go to them. So, so will we in our own lives have the courage to follow what Jesus said and hold each other accountable? A third application is how will you respond when someone that you love falls under church discipline. Let's say that you're in a life group and there's a couple in your life group that you assume that they are married, they kind of present as married, but halfway through the session it becomes obvious that they're not married, they're living together, they're not married. And so what typically happens is that the life group leader will probably reach out to one of our life group pastors that they report to and they'll get coached through and there'll be a conversation much like the one I, I shared. And and often that person will repent and turn and maybe get married or whatever, this, whatever the situation, kind of move out or whatever is called for to live a holy life, right? But sometimes they don't. And so the life group leader has to share that with the group that, hey, John and Sue are not going to be with us right now. And here's, here's kind of the situation, what's going on. And so we're, we're following what Jesus has asked us to do. They're not part of the fellowship right now. And uh, the question is, when you hear that, how will you respond? Will you respond in saying, I'm so thankful I'm part of a church that takes Jesus seriously? Or will you respond, I can't believe they're doing that. We're so judgmental. I can't believe that. Well, I'm, I'm going to still stay in relationship with them. No one else does. See, this teaching of Jesus affects all of us. And, and what's, what's important is that Jesus has a vision for his church. And his church, his vision, it says in Ephesians 5, he gave his life for us that he might cleanse us, that we would be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is his passion. We are his bride. And we report to him. And so it's a really important issue an issue of accountability in a culture that has very little accountability left. Yeah. 
Will we live and follow the culture or will we follow Jesus and his cross? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. So, Father, today is a very hard-hitting passage of Scripture that really flies in the face of some of the deepest values of our culture, the sense of, of not speaking into each other's life, of knowing having the right to do that, and yet you so clearly say that as part of your new community, your new family, we have a responsibility to speak into each other's life. And so, Father, we pray that you would shepherd us in this. We pray you'd write these things on our heart. Help us to process through well, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. My guess is that in a congregation of this size or those who are joining us online, there may be some of you that, that are in that situation like this man in Corinth, that you're living in flagrant sin and somehow you've been justifying it. And I want to invite you, if that's you, that today would be a day of, like, like Dre described, beautiful repentance. Kind of a facing the truth about your situation, coming back to Jesus, surrendering to him, and experiencing that joy of having the Father run towards you as in the, the story of the prodigal son, to welcome you home. So Father, we pray as we, we worship, as we sing this song of resurrender, we pray that this will be the song of our heart as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.